Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, everybody. I am so excited to get together today with our esteemed guest, Chelsea Waite, Principal Researcher at the Center on Reinventing Education. Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Haley. It's great to be here. I ask my former guests, as my listeners well know, if they have any recommendations about someone who they think would be an amazing guest. And Mr. Evan Stone of e for e recommended you, and I'm so grateful that he did. So thank you, Evan, if you're listening. Um, this conversation is sure to be an interesting one. Chelsea, you have such an incredibly interesting purview in education. I'm excited for you to dig in. I'm so excited to talk a little bit about what I'm learning and I'm really grateful to be here. So why don't you start us off by telling everyone, how did you come to be the personal and professional version of yourself? This is such a great question. I recently had a sort of revelation about this, actually. <laughs> um, currently, uh, in public education, you know, working pre predominantly studying public schools, um, I am on a nonprofit theater board. And I am uh, involved with my Unitarian Universalist Church here in Seattle, where I live. All three of those things have sort of like long, sort of long, a long set of roots. Um, sort of early in my life, I grew up Unitarian Universalist, which is a, like a non-credal religion that's more defined by a set of principles than a set of sort of hard beliefs. Um, and those principles are things like the inherent worth and dignity of, of every person and use of the democratic process and things like that, pursuit of justice. Um, I also was a theater kid in like starting in elementary school and going through high school and even parts of college. Um, and I think I loved making theater because it was this like real life venue where kids can make art for a real audience. Um, and then I also wanted to be a teacher, probably starting in high school, definitely through college. That was sort of my, my, my like best bet for what I probably would do after college. Um, and so all of those things, it's funny to like think about what those things were to me when I was a kid and how important they were. Think about how important to, to me they are now. And then my revelation <laughs> is that these are all three institutions that are like shrinking today, <laughs> churches, oh. nonprofit theaters. And I think we have to admit, you know, based on sort of recent trends and enrollment and even just population shifts, public schools. Um, and so I, I'm like really coming into this like newfound idea that like the thing that I want to do in this world is to support the sort of strength and like evolution of institutions that I really think matter. I think like churches are places where people find community and meaning. I think like theater and arts are places where we like make new things and like influence culture and sort of reach out to each other in ways that sort of don't happen in, in normal spaces. And then schools and, and like learning environments, I think are just such 
critical places where we like become and develop who we are going to be. So that that you you're um, like one of the first people for, to whom I have shared that recent revelation. <laughs> okay, so that is really profound and such an interesting thread that you're recognizing. How did you come to realize it? Was it like a moment where you were reflecting somewhere, or was it in preparation for this podcast? Like, where did your <laughs> where was your light bulb moment? <laughs> I was at a board meeting for the um, theater that I'm on the board for. And we were talking about sort of like this, like persistent challenge of the business model of nonprofit theaters. And then only a couple of days later, I went to sort of a learning session at the Unitarian church where folks were also talking about how sort of churches writ large and like Unitarian churches are no exception to this um, are just seeing their like memberships decline, seeing their members like disproportionately become older and older. And they're starting to question like, you know, what is church? Like, where is church? How does church happen? Who is church for? Um, and so both of those things, I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm having so many of the same conversation in, in education about like, what is school? What is it for? Where does it happen? who teaches in schools. Um, and all of that I think is like coming from this place of like, these institutions have been around for a really long time. They were sort of designed, many of them in totally different eras where like needs and sort of culture and even you know the economy were very different um, and they need to evolve. And I think one of the things that, um, I studied in my master's program, which was focused on social innovation, was about basically like how do institutions change um, and how do they, you know, change from the inside? How does sometimes they become changed due to external pressure? How do they sometimes like change together by partnering and working together? So this question about sort of institutional change, I think, is also like a theme woven throughout all of that. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. You had like building blocks, one one kind of realization that led upon another. So let's let's talk about education. What is going on from your seat where you are, which you told me the acronym for your organization is actually <laughs> P, which was new for Therapy. me. Yep. I don't know if all the listeners know that. Um, so Serpy, what in your seat at Serpy right now and the work you're doing here as well as the work you've done in your previous roles, what what's the kind of state of the union. Yeah, well, first of all, it's funny that you um, sort of phrase it that way. Um, SERPI, the Center on Reinventing Public Education has um, a report that we're now putting out every year for at least the next um, three years after this, we've done it for two years so far, called the State of the American Student. Um, and part of what that is trying to do is track and aggregate sort of all of the research we can find about how young people are faring, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so knowing that there was a huge disruption to learning and impacts on young people's sort of social connections and de development and um, mental health, uh, we're, we're trying to continue to make sure that attention is drawn to the, the sort of long tail of impacts on kids and young people. This year's report 
was focused on older adolescents, basically, um, students who are in high school now or have, you know, since gone on to post-secondary pathways um, after being in high school during the pandemic. Um, and the news is not good. Like young people are in many ways really suffering um, the, the impacts both, you know, socially and economically and in terms of mental health. Um, and so like that key message, which I think is one of SERPI's real like anchor strategic commitments to continue drawing attention to those issues is then sort of matched by another, a different and related organizational interest in, in understanding and surfacing and sharing sort of promising solutions where schools, as well as, you know, other creative entrepreneurs and sort of um, creators of learning environments in the education system are like trying new ways of, um, you know, bucking old assumptions and, and trying new ways of designing far more equitable and responsive and in many cases sort of more individualized learning environments that take into account that young people are all different from each other. They have sort of different and differentiated needs. And as Todd Rose says, jagged profiles. Um, and they have, they bring both sort of strengths and needs to the table. And so can our learning environments and education systems better um, flex to and then sort of respond to and support those um, strengths and needs. So that's sort of like writ large, one of the big things that um, SERPI is focused on and and several of my projects at SERPI are really, are really um, anchored in that like identifying possible solutions and understanding them and building evidence for them um, in order to then hopefully see them like spread and grow. Um, and one of the projects that I lead that and that I actually have led since 2018 before I joined SERPI is called the Canopy Project, which is a national scan of schools and learning environments that are designing more equitable and student-centered spaces for young people. So typically, you know, when we talk about these big topics in education, there's like a level of optimism or pessimism. And it sounds like the work you're doing allows you to focus on the optimistic aspects, like what's working, how do we replicate it? So I would ask you, Chelsea, Canopy Project is a perfect example. So you're welcome to talk more about that if you'd like, but what's giving you like a large amount of hope right now? Like what can the, what can the folks listening do their own research on, be excited about, look for schools that are in implementing. What's something that we can all just, you know, have as a, as a feel good, exciting future pathway for education. Yeah. Well, I am an optimist, but I call myself sort of a grounded optimist. Um, <laughs> not just head in the clouds as much as like, I, I want to see the sort of potential in things and like help that potential to grow. So, um, you know, as a, as a researcher, I would say that those are the kinds of projects that I'm most drawn to. Um, and I do think, I mean, one of the headlines from Canopy since the beginning is that schools all over the country in a wide and diverse range of circumstances, working with a, a really diverse range of young people are finding ways to innovate, by which I mean mostly kind of getting creative to solve problems that don't have obvious solutions. Um, 
And so actually one thing that I think is important to say is um, even though a lot of what, you know, SERPI is interested in is emerging solutions and promising solutions that address pandemic impacts on kids, we also know that the pandemic sort of served to just like deepen many of the pre-existing inequities that we already knew about and that are kind of hardwired into education systems. Um, so these are not just problems that arose from the pandemic, but problems that have really been persistent in education. And I, I think the thing that sort of keeps me going and gets me excited to do the work that I do is um, getting to highlight examples of not just where people are sort of, you know, educators and leaders are developing like new or flashy or like wild <laughs> kind of different um, yeah. models for learning, but where they're developing models for learning that are really targeted at creating a better and a more equitable and a more student-centered experience, especially for young people who have not had that in the way that our education systems were sort of originally constructed. Um, so getting to That's learn from those leaders, like those are folks who are focused on like real problems in the world and getting really creative to solve them. They believe that there are solutions. The solutions are sometimes sort of counter in some ways to what the current system, you know, leads people to do, but, um, but they're out there and they're working and they're working in public district schools. They're working in charter schools. They're working outside of the public school system, um, in all of those different Spaces. So I, I think one kind of message of the project is like whatever you thought innovation meant in schools, there's probably sort of a wider um, playing field than you may have known because this project is aggregating together a whole lot of different people's perspectives on um, where and how schools are innovating. Uh, someone tipped me off to an article this morning that feels so spot on to what you're saying. It's coming out. Mm, tell me. In Education Week by Alfie Cohn, and it's called The Sneaky Conservatism of Ed Tech. And it's basically about how, like, there's so much, there's so many features, there's so many things, there's so many, you know, like bells and whistles. And like, that's actually not what is really helping, or it's not always what is really needed. And uh, yeah, can can the teacher's lectures be jazzed up by a tool or a technology? Sure, but like, what is really like learner-centered? What is teacher-centered? I'll I'll definitely share this piece with you. It's coming out. I love that. This September 26th is supposed to come out tomorrow in Education Week, uh, September 27th. But it really speaks to your point about one, it isn't that we have to build something new. Two, it's not always that the answer that is the shiniest is the right answer. Uh, there are things that have been working in schools for years, decades, even months that show really promising effects that we can lean on. I, when you told me about Canopy, I really, I was like, wow, I didn't know this existed. Like it felt really eye-opening for me and I was super excited. So if folks listening have not done their research, where can they find the it's not on the SERPI website it's or it links through the SERPI website but it can be found on its own domain. it has so. exactly yeah it has its own landing page and part of that is because um it's a project that is kind of collaboratively stewarded it's not just a, a SERPI thing um it's uh currently led by SERPI and Transcend Education another nonprofit. um and we have a, a range of it. We have 12 advisors from different nonprofits and um, research organizations and schools. 
who are also involved. Um, it's funded by a collaborative funder cohort. So the project can be found at canopyschools.org. Um, and on just on the homepage, there's um, there are kind of two things I would call out. One is there's a, an interactive data portal, kind of maybe we should change that term. It's sort of wonky, but there is a place where you can actually like access and browse the data yourself. These are annual surveys of school leaders whose schools have been nominated to the project by education organizations that have some kind of expertise and lens into sort of innovation in K-12 or with, with an equity lens. Um, so um, the data portal, you can, you can either kind of go straight to a school's profile if you kind of know a school that you wanna check out. Um, you can also go to sort of like an overview map and filter and sort for things like I want to see where public district schools in rural areas are really focused on project-based learning. Um, and it'll, you know, pop up a, a list of schools that are currently in the database that meet that criteria. Um, so that is one of the, the key resources of Canopy. We also then do annual reports where we're kind of analyzing the data that came through in the survey that year. Um, and this year we, we actually got, we got a little ambitious. <laughs> we published multiple reports. Um, there's one that is kind of an, a flyover overview of, of key trends in the data. Um, but there's another, I'll just give one more example. There's another one that I think really kind of sort of speaks to what we're talking to, which is focused on, um, how schools are designing really meaningfully inclusive environments for multilingual learners in particular. And the kind of key takeaway from that paper, which is both drawing on survey data from the Canopy survey, as well as some interviews with school leaders in Canopy, the key takeaway is that, you know, these schools are really prioritizing students' multilingual development in multiple languages, rather than seeing English language sort of proficiency as the be-all end-all goal. And it's a simple, but in some ways, totally counterintuitive idea to the way that our schools and education policies are set up to really prioritize English. Um, but part of what, you know, the school leaders are, are saying and what other research backs up is that there are, in, in many cases, perhaps unintended, but real harms that come to young people when they're home or native languages are sort of being deprioritized when they're being told that's not you know, that's not what we do in school. Um, and so these schools are really embracing multilingualism and they and the paper goes into some details on how they do that. So that's a great example of like solving problems <laughs> that, you know, getting innovation means solving problems that have sort of plagued education for a very long time um, and sometimes don't look flashy. But then I do think there's a role for creative sort of breakthrough technologies that can sort of slot in in support of these like broader sort of visions and instructional models that schools are developing. So it's not that technology doesn't have a role to play, um, but that to your point about the, the article that you were just talking about, um, you know, if, if the sort of flashy technology is like the beacon <laughs> that is sort of um, inspiring or like leading the charge and you know what a school is trying to change um, at least in the I'll, I'll sort of go into my researcher 
mode and say in the canopy project that is less what we see schools talking about. It's not like we want to figure out how to be like an AI focused school. It's like we are leveraging AI in these really specific ways with our specific student population to try to solve some issues that have been sort of at the root of why our students are not thriving. I think that's such an important distinction. I also just want to go back to the piece you shared about the multilingual learners and mm. the way that schools are approaching. You know, multilingual learners are some of the largest growing populations of students in the United States. And the work that's being done to support them is really disparate across the country, right? There's politics that play into this. There's regional needs that play into this. There's funding issues that play into this. But the solution you're naming here seems like it'd be not very costly and like easy to implement, which I think could be what may be so powerful about the particular research. Like I read it before our conversation mm. today and I thought to myself exactly what you said. Wow, Chelsea, that is like so small, but obvious and also profound. And, and it is amazing to hear the ways in which schools are leveraging a, a, like a strengths-based approach to, to teaching and learning for kids. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that is where sort of like the, to, to your point earlier, where the optimism can like really find grounds to, to thrive. I will say, I think, and this is a, this is a big part of sort of what Serpy's research and, and lens is all about. There are, there are so many kind of zones of wishful thinking that are easy to fall into when sort of landing upon an, an idea that just seems like so, like a gimme, like, of course, <laughs> um, but then kind of runs into all kinds of walls, and one of which came through in the in the paper's findings around just who are the teachers, like where is the pipeline of sort of multilingual teachers who can be, um, you know, the the supporters of a an environment, a learning environment that prioritizes multilingualism. Um, so it, it's I agree with you that it's sort of a it's encouraging that it it's sort of a starts with a mindset shift more than some like massive sort of overhaul um, of like what a school is or like where it happens. Um, but I also think that there are like real structural barriers that both those schools are facing, but then, you know, other schools that might be trying to do this um, would also face. And the, you know, as, as you know, well, like the, the where schools find educators um, is just like a multifaceted problem these days. Because um, it's both about like a sort of the pipeline and and access to trained educators writ large, um, but also then if you are a school with a particular sort of instructional model, a really tight mission and vision, you actually need not just any teacher, but you need a teacher who really like gets what you're trying to do and probably has some sort of experience and history teaching in that kind of environment. Um, oh, Chelsea, do I ever understand that? You know, I, <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as I said the piece about like, well, it's not super hard, like you're right. It is hard because there's this really significant regionalized need. I actually 
on Friday shared an uh, a re a ed working research paper from uh, Annenberg Institute at Brown, which I know you're familiar with the university, <laughs> um, but they shared a unifying framework for understanding and predicting vacancies. And last year, there was this like media attention in this really un unhelpful way where it was like, there are teacher shortages. There are teacher shortages. Are there teacher shortages? Yeah. People were so caught up on this idea. Like, are there? Yes, there are. There always have been. They're just not everywhere. And it's not a national problem if you aggregate the data. But if you mm -hmm. disaggregate the data, even like within a district, huh find that there are shortages. So they actually, you know, the team of, uh, you know, uh, Matt Kraft at all uh, <laughs> have started to really dig in, like, how do we actually look at teacher vacancies so we can get a better understanding? But it speaks to your point that this is a real issue. You have in some districts, hundreds of languages represented in their school. So how do you, how do you address the multilingual learner needs in both languages or, or all languages if you have hundreds. That would be a, a very difficult feat to accomplish on site if that is what your framework is limited to or like your school's implementation is limited to. Yep. Yeah. I love it when like one of the things that I think we saw happening during the pandemic, but also sort of both, you know, with history before the pandemic and, you know, ongoing sort of creativity after um, since then is schools that are sort of thinking more openly about like the, the boundaries of their school and the permeability between the school and the community. So being able to leverage community assets, if your community also, you know, if you have kids speaking hundreds of, hundreds of languages, you've also got other community members, families speaking those languages. Um, not all those people, of course, are like traditionally certified educators and are there sort of staffing models and ways of designing your school such that you could sort of leverage those community assets for learning, you know, in partnership with certified teachers. Um, we had a great, we've seen that happening. It's happening all over the place. Um, I'm sure there are many examples, but just one that comes to mind is in Central Falls, Rhode Island, um, where they were really focused on helping sort of the, they were uh, creating kind of learning hubs or learning pods of young people who are especially sort of at risk of disengaging or actively disengaging from school, especially immediately um, sort of during and following the pandemic and um, working on finding adults in the community who can be sort of mentors, coaches for those young people um, and support them in like, making progress in their work, kind of re-engaging in schools, thinking about like who they are and how who they are relates to, you know, what they're learning in school and who they want to be in the world. Um, and all of those things are like, that's kind of like youth development skills that are A, not always um, kind of forefront, at the forefront in traditional classrooms. And then B, I think, you know, uh, not, not always, um, taught reliably in sort of traditional teacher prep programs. So we're definitely seeing lots of schools kind of leveraging like the, you know, community social workers in their, in their communities or other like youth organizations um, whose expertise maybe is not education per se, but is like working with and supporting young people. 
And that's why I think the, the, the unabridged version of SERPI, which is a Center on Reinventing Education, is a really topical one for our conversation in that, you know, reinvention doesn't have to mean like complete redesign or complete disrupt. Like there, there are many ways to engage and rethink problems before us. So well said. Yep. Okay. So I, you know, I always ask this ending question of what advice you would give a teacher. And it feels weird to say that we're already at the end. This conversation has gone so fast. Uh, and I feel like I could talk to you about so many topics that you're studying or have studied or even are thinking about over this has been a blast. Episodes. So stay tuned for more appearances <laughs> at Chelsea. But I'm wondering what advice you would give a teacher who's starting their career today, given what you know, all the things you know, what would you, what would you advise them? Yeah, I love this question. And I, when I was reflecting on it, went back to sort of my own early experience, like in the beginning of our conversation, I talked about how in high school and, and most of the way through college, I thought that I was probably going to be a history teacher. Actually, I thought I, I wanted to be a high school social studies teacher. Um, I majored in history. So um, I kind of test that idea by doing, I also wanted an experience living abroad if I could sort of get if I could find one. So I ended up um, teaching English in Brazil for two years. Um, and that experience was incredible in a wide range of ways. Um, and also kind of taught me that I didn't want to be a teacher, or at least that was my kind of one of my takeaways coming from it. And when I look back, especially knowing what I know now, some of the reasons why I thought I didn't want to be a teacher in the end were predicated on a very like traditional narrow view of what a teacher's role is. I was alone in my classroom every day. I was like at the front of my classroom <laughs> every day. I was kind of responsible for, I felt actually, it, I felt like I was tapping into my theater skills. I felt like I was kind of like acting <laughs> um, and performing, if you will. And I couldn't imagine doing that like, for my career in the long term. And I think my mistake was, was thinking that that is all that, that teaching can be. Um, and so again, going back to like many of the themes that we've talked about, there are schools, like whole schools, and then certainly sort of programs within schools where it's possible to teach in very different ways, to be much more kind of um, guiding and coaching young people as they are kind of following their interests or, or working on a project um, that is less so about you being in the front of the classroom sort of conducting. Um, there are, you know, places where schools are experimenting with and developing much more collaborative teaching models where you are not the only teacher in your classroom. You actually have a team of teachers who are all you know, working together um, uh, with a larger group of students. So I didn't know that <laughs> when I started. And I think for anyone who, whether you're, you know, just getting into a career in teaching or like you're a few years in and you're like, okay, I guess I've like, I figured this out. I can do it now. But it's like really hard to imagine doing this for years on end. Um, my 
humble advice as someone who did not end up being a teacher is um, to to try to find places where you can teach differently and ways that actually sort of like connect to why you wanted to be a teacher in the first place, whether that means like really helping young people to like discover who they are and who they want to be in the world or getting to collaborate with other amazing educators or helping educators to like grow their skills. Um, I think it it's a profession where we think there's sort of only one way of being a teacher. And I think increasingly, again, based on what I'm seeing from this sort of set of schools in the Canopy Project, um, there are schools out there that are like desperate for folks who are like, I wanna teach, I wanna work with young people, but not in ways that, you know, most um, classrooms are set up. So it's out there, you can find it. Uh, I love that. And I think it's, you know, it's tough because the way we grew up is not how education is or has to be. Uh, and many of us, you know, were learned in that stage in the stage model. Uh, so I appreciate the perspective you shared here. And also you have the bird's eye visibility, you know, there are schools that are, are teaching in new and innovative ways that are re redesigning what education and learning and teaching and learning look like for kids. So Chelsea, it has been such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and the work you're doing at SERP and, uh, the Canopy Project. It is, it has really opened my eyes and I hope our listeners as well. It has been a blast, Haley. This is you. Thank you for creating such a generative conversation space. That's very kind of you. Thanks for saying that. And thank you to everybody who tuned in. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.